Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back to a multi-part series covering the shocking murder of Taylor Sampson and the sensational trial of his killer, William Sanderson. On the last episode of Nighttime, which was part one in this series, we are joined by the amazing journalist Kayla Hounsell, author of the best-selling book on this case, First Degree, From Med School to Murder. In that episode, we are introduced to the two main players in this tragic story, Taylor Sampson and William Sanderson. Kayla described how the entrepreneurial Taylor Sampson left his home carrying with him a large duffel bag and at least initially seemed to vanish into thin air. Then we learned that Taylor's telephone records led investigators to a track and field star and soon-to-be medical student named William Sanderson. Initially, Sanderson appeared to police to be open and forthcoming with information. In short, he claimed he'd planned to buy marijuana from Taylor the night of his disappearance, but Taylor had never arrived. Initially, there was no reason not to believe him, but when he agreed to reinstall an app that he said he and Taylor used to negotiate the drug deal, things started to go downhill fast. The prior messaging history was all still there, and it seemed to show that Taylor did arrive to Will's home to complete that drug deal. After the first interview, investigators let Sanderson leave the station, but they were now taking a much closer look at him. That closer look would include uncovering some highly suspicious items in a search of his apartment, and a second, much more intense interview than the first. It was in this second interview that Sanderson admitted Taylor was in his home, but he gave two different versions of the story, neither of which made much sense. That interview, and the first episode in this series, ended with police laying a charge of murder against William Sanderson. In tonight's episode, we'll again be joined by the author-slash-journalist Kayla Hansel, and we'll pick up right where we left off in part one with the investigators building a case against Will Sanderson. of her son's alleged killer is already making its way through the courts, but Linda Boutlier still hasn't been able to lay Taylor Sampson to rest. I'm waiting to find my son. The courts can deal with him. I want somebody to help me find my son. I want my son home. If I have to bury him, I have to bury him. All I have is memories. I don't even have him to hold, you know? Nothing. 22-year-old Sampson was reported missing on August 16th. Within four days, the case was declared a homicide investigation and police charged fellow Dalhousie student William Sanderson with first-degree murder. Despite a lengthy search at the farm where Sanderson grew up, police still haven't found Sampson's body. They have no idea where Taylor could be. 
and they're just hoping that somebody comes forward with some information. His parents get to see him, they get phone calls, I get nothing. I want the question answered, where's my son? That's it. As we left off in part one, Sanderson's second interview with investigators ended with him formally being charged with Taylor Sampson's murder. But investigators still had plenty of police work to do before anyone could say with any confidence what happened in Will's apartment that night. As the likely scene of the crime was being examined, Sanderson's girlfriend and fellow track star Sonia would tell investigators what she remembered about Will's behavior on the night Taylor went missing. If the recovered text messages on Will's phone or the blood found in his apartment looked bad, things were going to start looking a whole lot worse. So Sonia went out for supper with William Sanderson the night of August 15th, the night that Taylor Sampson disappeared. They went to a restaurant in downtown Halifax, and he asked her not to come home that night because he was going to be doing a deal that would auction off all of his clients. She didn't like that he was dealing drugs, and she had been asking him to get out of that for quite some time. And now that he was just days away from medical school, he was going to do that. So she went to a friend's house nearby, and they watched a movie. And it was shortly after midnight, close to 1230, that he told her she could come home. So she did. And she testified that she could smell cleaning products when she went in. And he told her that one of the guys who had been there had sucker punched the other guy and there was a fight and there was some blood that he cleaned up, but that the guy stumbled out okay. And they went to bed. And she said that she laid her head on his chest and his heart was pounding and he was sweaty. But they went to sleep and the next morning he drove her and her friend to work at a Starbucks. Uh, And then later that day she started to see the posts about Taylor Sampson being missing in his picture on Facebook. So she shared that with William and asked him, this isn't the guy that got beat up, is it? And he said, no, thank God. Although Sonia's story didn't disprove the ones Will told about masked men attacking Taylor, her statements were further evidence that something unusual went on in the apartment and an attempt was made by Will to clean it up. This cleanup may have been enough to hide what happened to a passerby, but he made some big mistakes. You may recall the moment in part one of this series where technology first betrayed Will Sanderson. Specifically, how those deleted text messages weren't nearly as deleted as he may have hoped. As it turned out, Will's technological mishaps weren't over yet. As investigators continued their forensic analysis of Will Sanderson's apartment, they turned their attention to Sanderson's rather elaborate surveillance system. He had cameras set up in the hallway outside of his apartment. This is surveillance that he put in place himself. Uh, and continued about all of these this activity with the cameras there, which seems like a surprising thing to do uh, when you're going to plan something of this nature. William Sanderson told police that he believed the cameras recorded over themselves every 20 minutes. Uh, either he was lying or he didn't understand his own equipment, which seems to be more likely. He was wrong about that, and the police were able to see him coming and going over several days after this happened. The cameras, much like the text messaging app, will provide investigators with more damning evidence of Sanderson's involvement in what is now being treated as the murder of Taylor Sampson. Again, to be clear, Taylor hasn't yet turned up, dead or alive, but given the blood, 
the bullet holes, and everything else found in Sanderson's home. This looked an awful lot like a murder. Now before we get into what investigators found on those cameras, I need to tell you about the two additional characters that are about to be introduced into this story. Two young men who would go on to be star witnesses for the Crown in the eventual trial. Pakeel McCabe and Justin Blades shared an apartment directly across the hall from Will Sanderson's. But they were more than just neighbors. McCabe, Blades, and Sanderson were close friends. In fact, it doesn't take much effort to find photos of the three men together on Facebook. Now, when investigators canvassed the building, asking residents about the night Taylor Sampson was believed to have been killed, McCabe and Blades stated they didn't see or hear anything unusual. However, when investigators obtained the footage from the surveillance system for the night of Taylor's disappearance, what they find is definitive proof Taylor was there, and they also find strong evidence that Sanderson's across-the-hall neighbors, McCabe and Blades, weren't being completely honest. The video cameras that were William Sanderson's own cameras showed quite a bit of evidence that police would use against them as they were building, building the case. Uh, on the night of August 15th at 10.26, we see Taylor Sampson enter William Sanderson's apartment with William. It's the last time that Taylor Sampson is seen alive. We never see Taylor Sampson leave. There is an hour and a half when the cameras are turned off, though. Um, and whatever happened in that apartment that night happened in a very short period of time. As I say, Taylor and William go into Sa- William Sanderson's apartment at 10.26. Four minutes later... Sanderson leaves his apartment and goes across the hall, and this is where he started to panic. And then we see his roommates come across the hall and look inside his apartment. And that's how police knew that Justin Blades and Pukil McCabe weren't telling the truth when they said they didn't see anything. They were seen on surveillance video looking into William Sanderson's apartment. Uh, But again, police had questioned them multiple times, and they maintained that they hadn't seen anything. With investigators left considering what, if anything, McCabe and Blades had to do with whatever happened to Taylor Sampson, the investigation continued to move forward in its attempt to answer two other burning questions. The first, where is Taylor Sampson? And the second, where is the duffel bag of marijuana Sampson was seen on camera carrying into Sanderson's apartment? Police hoped the surveillance footage captured in the days that followed Taylor's disappearance would help provide an answer. In the next clip, Kayla will describe the activity investigators found on Sanderson's cameras in the days after Taylor Sampson's disappearance. So then uh, we see the next day, William Sanderson leaves with his girlfriend just before 6 a.m. That matches up with the testimony the court heard that he had driven his girlfriend and her friend to work. He comes back to his apartment shortly after 6 a.m., but very quickly leaves again, and he's gone for three and a half hours. We do not know what he was doing during that three and a half hours. He comes back, and we see him putting some stuff in the trunk of his car, taking some stuff out. Uh, A couple of days later, on Tuesday, the 18th, we see him putting some stuff into the trunk of his car again, uh, some black garbage bags and a blue Adidas bag. And he's wearing like a rusty colored pair of gloves. And that's significant because those gloves, those black garbage bags, and that blue Adidas bag would later be found on his parents' family farm in the Truro area. As you heard, the activity around the apartment didn't necessarily answer any questions. 
but it did make it clear that Sanderson was removing stuff from the apartment, and it was probably stuff investigators would love to take a look at. Now, as Sanderson's activities were slowly being pieced together, new information would surface that would add another nail to the coffin homicide detectives were slowly sealing Sanderson in. Unexpectedly, police received word that a substantial amount of marijuana was found, and if you're Will Sanderson, it turned up in a pretty inconvenient place. The drugs turned up at Adam Sanderson's place, which was William Sanderson's younger brother's place. Adam testified that Will contacted him on the Monday morning after Taylor Sampson disappeared and said that he was going to come by and drop off some laundry. And that was pretty typical. He did that from time to time. So he did go visit his brother, Adam, that evening on Monday the 17th. He did not bring any laundry. Uh, He chatted with Adam and Adam testified that it was, you know, general stuff, nothing out of the ordinary, except that he said something might smell in the basement. Uh, So Will left, and Adam went downstairs, and then this is when he found the drugs. And he would later show his roommates, and by then they were starting to learn more about what was unfolding. Adam learned that his brother had been charged with first-degree murder, and they thought this might have something to do with the case. So they did the right thing. They contacted a lawyer and asked how they could go about giving a statement. They were aided in that, and the police executed a search warrant and seized the drugs. With both the drugs and Will Sanderson now safely in the custody of Halifax police, the investigation doubles its efforts in locating the last remaining piece of the puzzle, that being Taylor Sampson. Sanderson is sticking to his story that some masked men inexplicably entered his home, bloodied Taylor up, and spirited him away. Now, if you're listening carefully, you may realize that if masked men entered the apartment and took Taylor, they should have been seen on Will's security cameras. Police, of course, questioned Sanderson on this point, and he updated the second version of his story of what happened by clarifying that the masked men didn't enter the front door of his apartment. They instead entered through a window, thus avoiding an appearance on the cameras. Regardless, the walls are quickly closing in around Sanderson, and investigators are now desperately searching for the remains of Taylor Sampson. The search for those remains would focus on a large stretch of farmland the Sanderson family owns just outside of Halifax. Our guest Kayla was on the scene for some of those searches. The search for Taylor's body on the farm didn't begin until 10 days after he disappeared and a week after William Sanderson was arrested. Uh, Police did analysis of William Sanderson's phone records and found that his phone had pinged in the Truro area on that Tuesday morning, August 18th. He had also texted his dad that he would be going home to Truro to drop off some junk on Tuesday morning, and uh, it seems that he did do that. So police uh, searched this expansive area of the Sanderson family farm and the surrounding area for six days. I remember I was there at the time, and all of the reporters you know, very much expected to go on the news, the evening news, every night reporting that Taylor Sampson's body had been found. That did not happen. We were told after the six-day extensive search that some items of interest had been found. We were not told what. And so for a long period of time, you know, people in that area and people in Truro and Nova Scotia had no idea what was found on that farm. 
Once the case made its way to trial, we learned that police found those rusty-colored gloves I mentioned that William Sanderson was seen wearing on surveillance video. They also found those black garbage bags and a blue Adidas bag that William Sanderson was seen putting into the trunk of his car in what was described as an old abandoned ice cream truck on his parents' family farm. Inside those bags, they found a whole pile of stuff, some garbage, uh, the black, big back black duffel bag, a blue tarp, a shower curtain, and Taylor Sampson's DNA was later confirmed to be on most of those items. Although Taylor's remains weren't located, given the considerable evidence collected up to this point, the Crown had more than enough to take this case to trial. Sanderson was dishonest and got caught. Sanderson tried to cover up his dishonesty and was caught. Sanderson stashed the marijuana at his younger brother's house, but police found it. Taylor's DNA was found in an abandoned ice cream truck on the Sanderson farm. And they also found stuff Sanderson's own surveillance cameras filmed him removing from his apartment, the one Samson was last seen entering. All in all, if you're Will Sanderson, things aren't looking good. But believe it or not, what some consider to be the most damning piece of information was still yet to surface. And when it does, it would cement this case's legacy as one of Nova Scotia's most sensational trials. To back things up a bit, you may recall on the night of Taylor's disappearance, Sanderson's surveillance cameras filmed Taylor and Will Sanderson entering the apartment together. Then a few minutes later, Will left briefly and returned with the two men who lived across the hall, Justin Blades and Pokeel McCabe. The surveillance video showed Blades and McCabe looking into the apartment for a moment before leaving. However, when they spoke to investigators, they claimed to have seen nothing out of the ordinary. As things turn out, Blades and McCabe's statements were about to change significantly, and the circumstances leading to their admissions nearly lead to a mistrial. Justin Blades and Pukil McCabe are friends of William Sanderson, at least they were at the time. Pukil McCabe lived across the hall in the same building, and Justin Blades was a friend of both McCabe and Sanderson and was visiting Pukil McCabe that night. They were both members of the track team. They ran track with William Sanderson. And for months, in fact more than a year, Blades and McCabe told police they saw nothing at all. Then they changed their stories, and they said that they went across the hall that night, they peered into William Sanderson's apartment, they saw a man whom they could not identify because they didn't know Taylor Sampson uh, slumped over on a chair. He had been shot in the back of the head. There was blood all over the place. There were drugs all over the place. And William Sanderson was running around in a panic, picking up bloody money. Now, their stories, they became this trial star witnesses. And their stories are key because they almost led to a mistrial. They could have completely derailed the trial. And that's because there was a private investigator who was hired by the defense to go interview these guys, to lean on them and see what they might say under pressure. He did, and it worked. This is the first time that they told the real stories of what happened that night. And this private investigator felt compelled to make sure that the police knew about this. In fact, he went so far as to help set up a meeting between one of them and the police. So think about that for a moment. He's essentially switched sides here. He's been hired by the defense, and now he is leading the police to this damning evidence against his own client. And so that it would lead the defense to ask for a mistrial, although it didn't happen. With McCabe and Blades now revealing what they saw in Sanderson's apartment that night, 
the main components of the Crown's case are in place. The restored text messages, the surveillance footage, the statements made by Sanderson's girlfriend and his across-the-hall neighbors Blades and McCabe, the bullet in the window frame, Samson's DNA found on the farm. Now despite Taylor's remains being unaccounted for, things weren't looking good for Sanderson. When we get back from a short break, we'll hear how good Sanderson did or didn't do at this case's trial. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When Will Sanderson's murder case made its way to trial, our guest, Kayla Hounsell, was there in the courtroom for every bit of it. I won't spend too much time on the information presented during the trial, as this series presented very much the same information that the Crown used against Sanderson. Of course, all the key players had some time on the stand, Sanderson's girlfriend, McCabe and Blades from across the hall, the officer who interviewed Sanderson. All in all, I would say a strong case was made to show Sanderson alone was responsible for murdering and disposing of Taylor Sampson's body, likely somewhere on his family farm. But as far as the defense presented on Sanderson's behalf, here's what Kayla Hounsell had to say about that. In my view, the defense was kind of all over the place. Uh, They argued that the police interrogation was inadequate, that the police essentially had tunnel vision and were ignoring what they considered to be significant evidence, instead sort of following the evidence in this path that would prove the case they were building against William Sanderson. They argued that the police did not have uh, the right to enter Sanderson's apartment without a warrant, which, of course, is where they amassed a significant amount of evidence against him. They argued that he did not have a motive, as the Crown argued, because they said he did not need, he did not have a financial need. Um, They said he has a $200,000 student line of credit that he had access to. There was no financial need here, and therefore there was no motive. And they argued that William Sanderson was not this criminal mastermind that they believed the Crown had portrayed him as, but rather a guy that had simply panicked in the circumstances that he was in. Did they have any explanation for how the evidence ended up on this abandoned ice cream truck on the farm? Was that something that was challenged? They did not have an explanation for that. But remember, they don't have to have an explanation for that. The defense does not have to prove anything. The burden of proof is on the Crown. The Crown had to prove that William Sanderson committed this crime beyond a reasonable doubt. He doesn't have to prove anything. And that brings us to the jury's deliberation and their decision. As the verdict was read to a packed courtroom, there was an unusual absence. 
Sanderson's family, they weren't in the room. It's been said that he asked them not to be there for this portion of his trial. So the jury deliberated for 22 hours, and I was at the courthouse for every one of those hours, along with, of course, a number of Taylor Sampson's friends and family. It was an agonizing wait for them. It went on much longer than anyone expected it to. So, you know, people started to wonder, are they convinced beyond a reasonable doubt? Are they maybe considering convicting him of second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder? The options put to the jury were to convict William Sanderson of first-degree murder as charged, to convict him of second-degree murder, to convict him of manslaughter, or to find him not guilty. In the end, the verdict that they returned was guilty as charged of first-degree murder. That comes with an automatic life sentence in this country with no chance of parole until 25 years. What some people don't realize, though, is that that doesn't mean he will be automatically released when the 25 years is up. It just means that that's his first opportunity for parole. He may never be released. At this point of the episode, I've completed the main narrative of the story, but there's still a lot more I'd like to share with you. I have some information about our guest, Kayla Hounsel, some info on the search for Taylor Sampson, and of course, there's some head-scratching developments related to Will Sanderson. I'm going to change this up stylistically for the remainder of the episode. It's basically how it worked. After Kayla and I finished discussing the case and the trial, we began a conversation about her book, First Degree, and about what's been going on with those involved in the case since the verdict was delivered. What will follow is a portion of that conversation I had with Kayla. We'll jump into the talk with Kayla describing her best-selling book, First Degree, a book that goes much deeper into this case than we did over the course of our two episodes together. Maybe first I'll tell you about what I consider the book to be. Yeah. First Degree is a presentation of this entire case. From the very beginning, those early days when Taylor Sampson was first reported missing, when we didn't even know that a crime had been committed, I was covering it at that time, all the way through the lengthy court proceeding, through the bail hearing, through a number of... um, through a lot of material that was previously under a publication ban, then up into that two-month trial that we saw. I think it's ultimately about how two young people, two promising young people with very bright futures, ended up in this place where one of them is dead and the other is serving a life sentence for first-degree murder. Writing it uh, was very challenging, more challenging and more time-consuming than I even would have imagined. Um, It's been a very rewarding process particularly getting to know Taylor Sampson's mother. I'm just forever indebted to her for the time and the trust that she gave me to tell her son's story over and over again. You know, she welcomed me into her home. She shared family photographs. She let me look at private text messages and, of course, shared her grief, uh, grief that very much continues because she still doesn't know where her son is. Mm You were already reporting on on this um, on this case uh, by the time you you started the book. You knew it inside out. Tell me about like the kind of time it took to take the work you'd already done and what you'd known about the case and turn it into like to, to dig deeper into it to the point that you were able to put this book together. So just kind of talk about the research you did beyond your initial reporting for the book. 
A lot of the research did come from the trial itself. I, you know, poured back over two months of audio. I also looked at all of the evidence exhibits in the case, which are now a part of the public record. There were 100 evidence exhibits. Um, so pouring through text messages uh, between William Sanderson and his mother and father and friends. But I also interviewed 20 people for this book. Not all of them are quoted directly in the book, but most of them are. Uh, and I'm grateful for each and every person who took the time to participate in the book. But certainly it was a significant amount of work. It took about a year and a half from the time that Nimbus approached me and asked me to write the book to the time that it was released. Uh, it seems to be doing very well. You know, it's early days still, so it's a little hard to tell. It's already made two national bestseller lists uh, and seems to be received very well. What kind of reaction do you get from from the families involved, and as well as I know you were doing like book signings in the communities where, where these really people involved in the story are from. What kind of reaction are you getting from people who are close to the people in these stories? I think for me, the most significant reaction was in Amherst, which was Taylor Sampson's hometown. So I went there to do a book signing and I did a talk at the library. And honestly, I wasn't sure what kind of reaction I was going to get because it's a very sensitive story. It's very personal for the people in Amherst. I heard from so many people. Um, people who seemed to want to tell me about how they knew Taylor Sampson or how they were connected to him. Very interestingly, I heard from a number of people who taught Taylor Sampson all through the years, elementary school teachers. Um, it was very humbling to see that all of them thanked me for writing the book and for giving Taylor Sampson an identity, which is really what I tried to do because I think in the early days of this case, he... The narrative that emerged in Halifax and in Nova Scotia was that he was just another drug dealer. Uh, obviously, from those interviews of, with his family and friends, I learned that he was so much more than that. It was important to me that people walk away with that understanding that he was more than a drug dealer. And from the reaction that I'm getting so far, that seems to have worked. So I'm pleased about that. Great. You already knew this knew the story well, you know, from from reporting on it initially. When you dove deeper and started putting the book together, was there anything you came you came across that surprised you or, or kind of changed the way you thought about the case? I mean, nothing in the actual case, I guess, was surprising to me because I was intimately familiar with mm -hmm. the case by that point. Um, what is a little bit of um, an, an untold piece of the story, in my view, is the, the reaction of William Sanderson's family and friends who chose not to participate in the book. Uh, I did have a very brief conversation with Sanderson's mother, who told me that the family would not be participating because, in their view, the story is not over because they are appealing the verdict. Uh, when I go to these book signings and talks um, that I've been doing, a lot of people ask me about that, and people want to hear from them. Um, people have some sympathy for them um, because they recognize that they seem to have been good parents by all accounts and have done everything right and they did not commit this crime but I think people want to know how this is affecting them what they're thinking at this stage now and so that I think might really have been the real surprise for me but unfortunately it didn't happen. Now although this case is closed aside from the appeal that that's you mentioned there Sanderson however behind bars has been busy and he's been in the news periodically for legal battles outside of this case can you 
to tell me a little bit about what's been going on. I'm assuming you're following this all closely. Very closely, of course. Uh, he has actually posted a profile on a site called Canadian Inmates Connect, which is exactly what it sounds, a dating profile for inmates. And he has indicated there that since he has been incarcerated, he has completed certificate programs in paralegal and electrical engineering. And he seems to really be using that education because, as you say, he's mounted a number of legal battles since he's been incarcerated. The first one uh, was to sue his former roommate, his roommate at the time of the murder, Dylan Zink Selig, for a loss of homemade wine and sneakers. Police found there were 28 pairs of brand name sneakers in William Sanderson's apartment, so he seems to have been a bit of a collector. And believe it or not, he was successful, and his roommate actually had to pay him $700 for some of that wine and those sneakers. Uh, after that, he mounted a battle to get back his laptop, his personal laptop. He was not successful in that. The Crown argued that the laptop would still be evidence for that forthcoming appeal that I mentioned. However, he was successful in getting a copy of the hard drive from that laptop to be given to his father. And the latest uh, twist in this case that we have seen is that Sanderson is now suing the private investigator who the defense uh, accused of effectively switching sides and leading police to the trial's star witnesses. He argues now that he would have had a chance of success at trial had it not been for the actions of that private investigator. So as you say, yes, he's been very busy. Hmm. Um, despite the case being closed and Based on the evidence, we have a pretty good idea of what had happened. But the big mystery that remains is where Taylor's body or where Taylor's remains are. Are you aware of any progress or any continued efforts to find him? I'm not aware of any progress. I know that it remains very important to Taylor Sampson's mother. She simply cannot get the closure that she's seeking. And it's very important to her that efforts continue to find his body. The police have said this will remain an open case uh, as long as they have not found his body. Um, I point in the book to a theory about what could have happened to his body, what some people believe could have happened. I've chosen not to discuss it publicly because it's pretty graphic, but it is there in the book if people would choose to read it. Perfect segue. For people who, because right now we're giving a pretty good crash course of what happened, <laughs> but your book, there's so much more than we would ever have time to talk about. For people out there who, who want to get this book and dive deeper into the case, what's the best way for them to do it? The book is available pretty much everywhere at this point, um, bookstores across Canada. It is available at every chapters, Coles and Indigo in the country. And of course, they can always order it online on Amazon. I want to end this episode with some thanks and some dedications. First, I want to dedicate this episode to the family, friends, in memory of Taylor Sampson. Although I've never met Taylor personally, I have spoken to many who knew him, and without question he was an inspirational person, full of life, taken way too soon, and missed dearly by many. I've heard from many listeners who in various ways are connected to the story, or connected to those involved in the story. I thank you all for writing and sharing your memories with me, and if anyone close to the case has any interest in speaking with me, please get in touch. I'd be happy to share your story in future episodes in the series. Next, I want to thank Kayla Hounsell for appearing in the series and for her amazing work covering the case. The events described in this series only scratch the surface of the story she masterfully lays out in her book First Degree, 
If anyone is interested in purchasing the book, I've added a link in the episode's notes. I'd also like to thank the amazing Canadian band Vox Somnia for again providing the music for this episode at nighttime. The music you've been hearing is an instrumental version of one of their great songs. I've linked to it in the episode notes as well. And with that, I'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. If you're interested in hearing more from Nighttime, please check out the Patreon group. It's only a dollar a month, and it allows you to both support the show and access the supporter-exclusive feed, which provides ad-free episodes released early, in addition to prior episodes that are no longer available on this free feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. With that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome some new members to the group. Fraser G, Lindsay the White, Cy Wowie Zowie, Joseph H, and Nicholas E. I sincerely appreciate your support at nighttime, and I thank you for becoming patrons last month. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. New on Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copycat on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner. All new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.